The challenge is that the sense of place and purpose in the world that human beings developed a long time ago, which led to that stability and permanence and so on. Right? First of all, it's all extremely fragile at the best of times. The earliest civilizations were not long-lived. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Tremblay and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. Stoics have a contemplative practice called the view from above. It involves looking down on our life from a larger vantage point in space or time. An excellent way to do that is to zoom out and look at history, the rise and fall of civilizations. When we do that, the trivial falls away and what is important remains. This conversation with the historian and civil servant Dr. Michael Bonner takes that larger perspective. Michael is a classicist, an expert on the Islamic Golden Age, and author of In Defense of Civilization. We discuss ideas of renewal, beauty, and order, what it means to be civilized, and indeed, what it means to be human. Here is Dr. Michael Bonner. My name is Caleb Ontiveros, and today I'm going to be speaking with Michael R.J. Bonner. Michael recently wrote In Defense of Civilization, so that's what we will largely be talking about today. Thanks for joining, Michael. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I thought it would be interesting to talk to you because at STOA, we're involved in the theory and practice of Stoicism, of course, which is a project of preserving and to some extent renewing an ancient philosophical tradition. And what you've been thinking about are these questions of preservation, renewal, and decay at an even larger scale, the scale of civilization. But before we jump immediately into that, do you want to say a bit about yourself by way of introduction and what brought you to this project? I'm nothing more than a lowly political hack, a servant and for the government here in Ontario, but in a previous life, I was I was an academic very briefly, and my my academic formation was originally in classics, in you know the Greco-Roman world and 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 literature, and I very gradually got into the history of the Middle East and then more specifically Persia. So. Iran being the sort of great co-equal superpower to the Roman state in, in antiquity. I, I published a couple of books on, on Iranian history, but the, the question of, you know, what, what civilization is and where it comes from and what are its, what are its features, what are its enemies, how, how do, how does it come about and how does it go away? That sort of thing. That's always been a kind of, you know, that's been an interest of mine, I think, ever since, you know, ever since school when, when we had sort of little introductions to archaeology. But it was, it was that, that show, the 13-part series by Kenneth Clark that came out in 1969. I saw, you know, in later life, you know, probably my mid-20s or so, which I, I just found absolutely captivating. And this, this is a man sort of looking back on the, you know, on the two world wars and taking, taking the, the, the disasters that befell Europe as a sort of starting point for, for looking back on, on what made, he, he says civilization, but what, what he's really referring to is what used to be called Western civilization. And uh, I thought that that kind of thing was well worth revisiting. It's a sort of, it's a mm -hmm. sort of theme that you might want to think about, you know, more than just, you know, once a generation and certainly more frequently than simply after, you know, in the aftermath of a huge war or anything like that. worth revisiting in its own right. And of course it's, I think it should be fairly obvious. It's worth expanding the, the field of view and the, the range of vision. And there's really no good reason to confine ourselves sort of only to the period after 
after the fall of the Roman state and, and only look at Western Europe. You know, that, that's where the idea sort of got going and uh, was the experience of COVID that, that and the lockdowns that, that made me revisit that idea of, of the fragility of civilized life. Right, right. And let's start with this a broad question. When we say civilization, or when you say civilization, what do you what do you mean? What are we talking about? Well, exactly. That is that is a very deep question. When this comes up, I usually start by saying what I don't mean. So I'll do that here. You know, I'm I'm definitely not trying to fly the flag for some kind of, you know, particular expression of civilization or some sort of local vision of it and I'm definitely not trying to say that there's some particular form of it or other that is superior or better. That's really not the point. We have to do something, I think, to come to grips with what that term actually means, whether it's still useful. I mean, people kind of don't, I don't think that they use it as much as they used to. I think that there's there's fear of introducing a bias or fear of too many unadmitted assumptions when it comes to sort of using that word. But I mean, the first thing to say is that I wanted to, I wanted to come to grips with what aspects of civilization are held in common by all people who essentially live in a single place and who are not nomadic hunter-gatherers. It's it, that simple. When we move from you know the period that we call the Upper Paleolithic to the Neolithic, and the first permanent settlements arise, you know what do we mean, and what do we still have in common with those earliest settlements? So I wanted to place it on a kind of anthropological, or like could I want to place it on an anthropological basis? So the other thing that I don't mean, and that I really want to impress upon the reader is that there is no, in my view, there is, there is no technological, there's no piece of technology or mode of production that gives rise to civilization or that is required by it. So, so this is very much antithetical to the older idea, which I think is still widely believed in the idea of the agricultural revolution. Cultural revolution is essentially a kind of Marxist vision of, of a of a change in the mode of production that that forces everybody to settle down and and live in one place and to develop states and gardens and so forth. And for me, what is what is key is you have evidence of first settlements and the first what we might call towns or cities or the very least permanent dwelling places for agriculture is fully developed. Now, it was arguably sort of fading out for a long time, but the idea that you have agriculture and then all, all of a sudden everything, that's not true. What happens is that the settlement comes first. The settlement comes around, the settlements are formed around what, what cl are clearly sort of communal religious sites, public centers of public ritual of some sort in, in the Near East, mm -hmm. and that the, the old hunter-gatherer economy is still going on. It may, it, may be, it may be fading out, but it fades out over a very, very, very long time. And the settlement, you know, the, the, the settlement itself gives rise to agriculture, not the other way around. So what does this mean? This means, as far as I can tell, you have a change of attitude or outlook, what you might call, what we now might call philosophy or some change of vision of the world that compels people to settle down. So what is that? What does the evidence suggest? Well, I've already mentioned the communal religious sense. They appear to be devoted to something like a cult of ancestors. There's there's evidence of like a kind of skull cult, especially at a place the site of Göbekli Tepe, which is in, in Turkey, or what is now, what is now Turkey. This is a very very early, if not the earliest sort of public 
ritual shrine. There's evidence of, as I say, a skull cult. Probably, I would say almost certainly a cult of ancestors. Right. So you have a sense that there is a community of people who have shared ancestors. And that they, they sort of agglomerate around um, a sign uh, at which they are venerated. In the absence of any future or potential discovery that might suggest otherwise, this is a new idea. This idea that people have essentially a shared past, that they have a, they're linked through, and that they, you know, settled in a common place that they they have a, a place in common where they belong their ancestors live and where they continue to live and where people now living could eventually become ancestors you know after they die this there seem there's no evidence that this is what people thought say in the upper paleolithic period the you know, the art that we have the material culture left over you know doesn't suggest anything like um, yeah, that's interesting because it's such an idea so many people would take for granted now that you have a family that persists through time or larger groupings of people that persist through time. But right. it's an open question whether you know that's the sort of thing that just came with human cognitive machinery or whether it's the sort of thing that we needed to develop. And as you're saying, it looked pretty plausible that there was some amount of development into that into that idea. Yeah, so it must have had some, I mean, I, I tend to agree that it probably did develop somehow what that development looked like that was entirely unclear. We don't really know what Paleolithic religion was like or, or what people thought of their place in the world. My argument is that to judge by Paleolithic material culture, cave paintings and, and, and you know, artifacts and so forth, their picture of a human being place in the world was uncertain. Mm -hmm. So the idea, and, and then I think that that makes sense in a world where you're constantly moving around and you're sort of pursuing game and moving with the seasons, having very sort of short, brief interactions with, with the world and with presumably other peoples. So I think, I think that that makes a ton of sense. So eventually at the site of at the start of Tzadokoyuk, also in Turkey, you find what is essentially the first town. And the first town had, you know, basically a number of adjoined houses that are all sort of attached to And it's there that you find the first, maybe not necessarily the first, but a substantial elaboration, significant elaboration of, of, of the of the kind of, of the attitude reflected in a place like Bekite. You have individual houses in which the ancestors are buried under the end of the floors for several generations. Each house has its own private shrine. It has its own hunting trophies, its own artwork and so forth, and its own hearth. And the evidence of archaeology shows every couple of generations the houses were dismantled and then rebuilt exactly as they were before. The, the, the wall art goes back exactly as it was. The, shr the shrine goes back in its original place. The hearth goes back in its original place. And you know, this goes on for almost a thousand years. It's extraordinarily stable society. So what does this mean? This is, this is another symbol of continuity looking back to the past. That mm -hmm. you have a group of people who do things exactly, or seemingly exactly the way their ancestors did. The house goes back in the same place. The ancestors are kept. The wall art looks the same. You know, ties of a shared, ties and symbols of a shared past. And as I say, this is an extraordinarily, by, certainly by our standards, it's a very stable civilization or early civilization. If you, if, and there's no evidence of any kind of you know, social or political hierarchy, but there's also no evidence that 
of, of sort of you know, radical egalitarianism. You just have these sort of interconnected households with their own with their with their own personal histories. Okay, so this is the element. This is this this is the, the, the sort of fundamental element of, of civilization, as far as I'm concerned. It means settled life. It means permanence. It means a sense of a shared past and a sense of a of a of a common a common humanity symbolized by shared ancestors that go way back. So again, there's nothing about any kind of particular technology or you know about money. It's not about big buildings or kings or none of that stuff. It is a, it is essentially an, an outlook and arguably a religious one. Have done Fast forward a little bit, and you get <clears throat> what I think of as this sort of maturity of, of all this, of this, of this civilized attitude in in dynastic Egypt, from the old kingdom, as we call it, and looking at the material culture of the old kingdom, I would say that civilization has three main outcomes. To do okay. So the first thing that I notice is that the material culture has a sense of clarity to it. The, basically, the world is a coherent whole that we can perceive and understand, and it gives rise to the use of language to describe the world and our experience of it. In the material culture of ancient Egypt, you have this clear and elegant presentation of, of hieroglyphs that show a sense of you know, recording the passage of time and you know, the, the names of kings and so forth. Is an, you know, a noteworthy contrast to say that the art of Paleolithic, of the Paleolithic time, which is you know, very beautiful and so forth, but as a kind of it often sort of seems an incoherent jumble. The next, the next thing that I claim to notice is the sense of beauty, which is a shorthand for harmonious proportion and sort of mathematical rigor in in the art and architecture of the, of the of the time. Finally, there's a sense of order, mm-hmm. which is which takes shape in this. I mean, it's. First of all, it's the idea that 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 there's some kind of organization organizational principle to to the world, both seen and unseen. I think it would be useful to go through, you know, of course, as Stoics here, our tradition, if you will, emerges from ancient Greece. So how would you say that ancient Greece realized these three ideas? So you have a sense that you have a sense that the Let's start with something like Plato. Okay, so you have a sense that there is a way of understanding the world through language, through conversation, through mutual understanding of persons. He he places a great deal of emphasis on this in the in the dialogue that he calls the Phaedrus. That there is a mental Socrates refers to a mental image, an image that takes shape because there is an internal painter describing or depicting what the senses perceive and words are expressing that image for another person. You must presuppose that the world can be understood clearly if that is your vision of how to communicate about it and to to express it to, to others. And of course, in the you know, for a person like Plato, interpersonal communication is an ex- is is the you know that is the what is the right metaphor? That is the most important way of conceiving of and 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 conceiving of the world and expressing it to others, as opposed to I don't know the image or yeah drawing a picture or or I don't know message a message of propaganda carved into a mountainside. Mm-hmm. It's different. It's interpersonal communication. Then you have the sense of beauty. Architecture is, you know, take an example of the uh, the, the the Parthenon. It's it's built according harmonious ratios and measurements and so forth. And you have the the sculptures of what is this? Tittles, which are the proportions of them are adjusted in accordance with where 
the sculptor thought the viewer would be standing. So there's there's pr procedures of foreshortening and making sure that the the measurements are perceived in such a way that they don't seem stretched or exaggerated, and that the viewer is 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 taken into account. This is, you know, different. I would think from most contemporary visions of what beauty means, but you know, from at least Eris onward in the in the Greek speaking world, you have vision of beauty that is based on harmonious proportion, mm -hmm. not just visually, but also obviously in music. The sense of order, you have you know, entire works of literature like Xenophon's Economicus to this idea that you know, household household management is a kind of microcosm of sort of a greater sense of of cosmic order, even that word cosmic, cosmos, it, it has this sense of, a, of an orderly, you know, an, an orderly universe and world around us that we are a part of. Right. And it's the work of someone like, you know, Aristotle presupposes that you have a an orderly universe that you can understand clearly, you know, obviously to the first point, but it isn't. It's it's far from being a of, a of a kind of chaotic jumble that you can you you have a part in it. It obeys rules, has some kind of organizational principle. And Plato would add the idea that there is also an order that is not not necessarily perceptible, but is nevertheless real too. But I don't want to suggest that this is only peculiar to, to Greece. Those yes, of are, course. Those are examples that illustrate. Yes, of course. A number of civilizations, of course, have these have these features. All civilizations on your account, and they span across many continents, of course. So what is the role of philosophies like Stoicism, or in Greece you have these other schools that emerge around the same same time, Epicureanism, the Cynics, these groups of people who are doing a mix of intellectual work, but they also have firm accounts of you know, what it is to live a good life. So there's this practical picture. And you know, in any civilization, you find these schools, groups of people emerging, trying to make sense of the world and coming up with an account of how best to live in it. What is the, in, in your picture then, the role that these movements movements play. Excellent question. This is at the I think this is the heart of what the book is trying to get at. You civilization presupposes there is a proper place in the world for human beings. We belong in a specific place that we have a shared past is rooted and stable in in that particular place and that there is a future for us for exactly the same reason. That, that leads to, I think, by a natural progression of thought, that just as there is some kind of organizing principle for the rest of the world, ants, bees, flowers, you, know, you name it, that there is something like that for us. And that that easily leads you to the question of, you know, human nature. What is it like? How do we live in accordance with that nature? And how would we how would we err by failing to do so? And stoicism, as do other schools of thought, but I think Stoicism is particularly emphatic on the idea that there is a particular human nature we must respect, just as there is a you know, nature and there are all sorts of other things. That living in accordance with human nature, and I think especially respecting its limits, and you know, well, I said respecting its limits, not like not not going, you know, not going beyond what is 
properly ordained for us by by nature, that that is that that is what we must do in order to live a good life. Living the good life, I think, certainly. I mean, feel free to jump in and correct me if I speak. Aristotle leaves open the question as to what the good life is, although he presupposes that there is such a thing. I don't know if the Stoics precisely define exactly what the good life looks like. I think it may be slightly different though. But again, the point is that there is that there is such an organizing mm -hmm. principle for human beings, which I would suggest, you know, civilized life allows us to develop more fully. You know, there must have been a there must have been an upper Paleolithic human nature and may have not been very much different it's different at all from what it is now. I mean, we are still fundamentally the same, the same people, but perhaps we could say that what I'm calling civilization allows, allows that nature to, to develop more, more fully in accordance with perhaps what Aristotle and company might call the, the, the tenos, the goal of, of human nature. And, you know, depending on Depending on what school of thought you belong to, I think that these these things can be defined differently. But again, the point is that they are real things that are worthy of our attention and that we should attend to in order to be fully, I would say, you know, fully human, in order to be in order to achieve the proper end of, of human life. Stoicism presupposes that in order to get to that state is that we have we must practice virtue, we must avoid vice. Now I think that certain people would tell you that there might be slightly different they might give you a different category of what the virtues are or what the vices are, maybe slightly sure, different sure. here or there. But the the point is that these are real things. These are tools. We can discuss them, you know, endlessly, but they are real tools that can aid us in in that development and i think that that is you know that is a mode of taken all together that is this is a mode of thought that is still very useful to us and which you know in in one context we can identify it as stoicism in another you know i think many aspects of confucian thought are very similar there is much to be said for the, you know, I think slightly simpler vision of Aristotle. I don't think Plato would have been a stranger to this mode of thought also, but he might not have agreed with Seneca. Uh, and of course, the Christian vision of virtue ethics is 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 also very similar, although not entirely the same. So I would say that this is a this is a vision of how to live as a as a human being that has served us well in the past, which can still inform can still inform us, and that contrary to what I think a lot of people might say about it, it's not important necessarily to agree on what the right outcome is precisely because not everyone would. I mean. I don't think you know, Epicureans and Stoics would disagree as to what the good life is, but they would not disagree that there is a good life to be aimed at. Mm -hmm. That we that there are principles and tools, principles to adhere to and tools to use to get. I think that is the. I think that that is the heart of the matter that I, I, I feel is is seems to be missing from modern discuss or contemporary discussions as to. You know well, how how people ought to live, and what they should do, and, you know, how to choose virtue and how to advise. There's too much emphasis on on this idea that we'll never agree. Well, of course we will never agree. You know, everybody is slightly different. That's not the point. The point is that we have that we have a, a shared common nature that can be assisted to to its proper development and conclusion the practice of, of virtue and i would like to 
you know, I would like to think that this has contributed contributed much to mm-hmm. to uh, our species' success as as uh, you know as civilized civilized human beings, and that we might need to learn from it. Hi, everyone. This is Michael Trombley. Thanks for listening to Stoa Conversations. We're a new podcast. We're getting started. We're building episode by episode. So I wanted to just give a quick shout out and say that any like, review, or referral that you can provide really goes a long way to helping the show. Thanks again for listening. Right. So even though the Greeks disagreed quite a lot over what the different virtues were, or perhaps how important the virtues were in a good life, nearly for all of them, virtue was one of the most important things. And nearly all Greek philosophers saw eudaimonia sort of as the purpose of human life. This account or yeah. had a robust account of happiness, and that's what human beings, as rational social animals, were were geared towards. And even if there's quite a lot of disagreement within the picture of you know what is how important is virtue relative to other things, what else matters, that is enough to establish a coherent path, if you will, for what people would consider a good life. I don't want to appear cliched, but you know, at, at least since the Enlightenment, or what, what we call the Enlightenment, this idea of a, of, a, of, a human, of a distinctly human nature with all its limits and, and, and so forth, that, that has, a lot of people have rejected that idea or they seem to reject it. So of course, if you reject that idea, you will not be convinced that there's any particular mode of thought or behavior or attitude or anything that do as a human being in order to, you know, live and act in accordance with that, with that nature and to allow it to develop. And you might also be inclined, as many people are now, to think that human beings can be perfected or that they can be somehow changed, that the, their, their nature is not fixed. Well, I mean, I think that's, I think that's wrong. And, and I think that you know, experience proves it is wrong. It occurs to me, in, you know, that there is one, you know, if I, if I wanted to say one really good thing about science, it would be that it can now tell us more about human nature, I would argue, than was available to the ancients. And that instead of, instead of treating science as the sort of solution to, you know, problems with you know, problems with ourselves or that seeing the limits in human nature that, that they must be somehow removed by science, then instead it would be more probable to, to, to view it as a tool by which we learn more about ourselves and our limits and therefore ideally more about how to live better and more virtuously. But mm-hmm. that doesn't seem to be a popular viewpoint. Yeah, I think one always needs to be careful when making using science as a tool for this sort of thing to delineate out what sorts of claims are descriptive. You know, just saying this is the way that humans are in particular ways, as opposed to which one the normative claims. You know, these are claims about how humans should be or what their proper function is. But it certainly is the case that when it comes to answers, like you know, what is the, a good life, you need both a set of an understanding of the descriptive nature of humans, if you will, and then also these normative principles and ideas about how to realize that nature. So it should be, I mean, in theory, it should be a better discussion, or we should be able to address this better now. But it seems to me that we don't even try. Yeah. So that's a nice transition to the book is, of of course, titled In Defense of Civilization, which suggests that civilization is being challenged, perhaps by internal or external forces. What do you want to say or what any parts do you want to highlight about this challenge, existing challenge to civilization? Well, broadly speaking, I want to say something about what I think the challenge is. The challenge is that the sense of place and purpose in the world that human beings developed a long time ago and which led to that stability and permanence and so on. First of all, 
it's all extremely fragile at the best of times. The earliest civilizations were not long lived. You know, things like I described uh, you know, very early on, Chuck, the, the Egyptian old thing that they, they seemed, they must have seemed indestructible at the time, but even you know, they, they disappeared. In the case of Egypt, you know, there was a middle kingdom and there was eventually a, a new kingdom. It kept going, but there were collapses. In, in Mesopotamia, there were more frequent collapses. And I, what, I don't know what else you would call what happened in Europe in the middle of the 20th century. I mean, it, it, was, it was quite, quite spectacular. There's horrific collapses there. You also have the Bronze Age collapse, you know, in, in 1177 BC. There are many examples that prove this idea of, of fragility. And we should not consider ourselves now to be somehow beyond that. The idea, the ideas or the attitude, or the, whatever you want to call it, given a civilization, it, it can go away. And it has been... It, it has vanished. It has also come back, but sometimes it comes back after quite long intervals. Sometimes there are, like the, the collapses are necessarily often horrific. There are plagues, there are soil salinization, droughts, you know, all kinds of things to contend with. We still contend with, and we should never con deceive ourselves into thinking that we are above these problems. Just think about COVID-19. I mean, the, the, the death toll of, of plague does not have to be astronomical in order for it to be disrupted and in order for it to produce, you know, quite bad dislocations and con confusion, not to mention economic troubles or... And so, so imagine, imagine that compared to something like the Black Death, probably killed off you know, a third of a third of the world's population. I mean, that's just like unimaginably worse. So put that into perspective and and see that we're contending against really quite difficult things. So it's fragile. It's liable to go away, but it can it does come back. If it didn't come back, if it didn't have some kind of appeal and staying power, we never would have tried it again after the 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 first collapse when, whenever it was. So it does come back. How does it come back? It's essentially, hopefully just, this doesn't seem too banal, but I think it does need to be reiterated from time to time. It comes back by imitating what came before. It comes back by reestablishing that link with the pounce that there were, you know, things that worked before. Well, let's do them again. Let's imitate this other older thing because it worked. You know, that, that should seem fairly straightforward, but again, it is quite antithetical to contemporary notions of innovation and progress. Innovation and progress did not give us civilization. If anything, they are somewhat liable to threaten it or to be sort of antithetical to it. They are liable to disrupt our sense of what worked in the past. They're liable to suggest to us to look into the future for some new thing rather than to be rooted, rooted in the past with our connections to other persons and to place the emphasis on security. So, again, I told you earlier, I'm not here to fly the flag for any particular group of people or a particular local expression of anything, but I do think that there is a problem in what we call Western civilization, and I think that there the problem has been there for perhaps longer than most people would realize. I'm I'm inclined to oversimplify it and say something like, basically everything that your high school history teacher told you about the greatness of people like Galileo and Francis Bacon and company is wrong. That although we should not dismiss the idea that there are sort of individuals of genius who you know, 
discover new things and that's you know remarkable and everything the the idea of a of a of a world that turns its back on the past so to speak and it suddenly becomes focused on things like extreme radical individualism innovation futuristic visions um visions of, of future utopias and so forth this originates with Europeans and it accelerates this this, this future orientation individualism radical innovation this sort of co complex of ideas takes shape at the end of the middle ages and, mm -hmm. and there are figures sort of ambivalent figures like Petrarch who sort of set it off and, 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 and get this going. Practice Stoicism with Stoa. Stoa combines the ancient philosophy of Stoicism with meditation in a practical meditation app. It includes hundreds of hours of exercises, lessons, and conversations to help you live a happier life. Find it available for a free download in the Play Store and App Store. So there's always so much to talk about and it's hard to cover it all in a short conversation like this. But what I understand from that case is a number of points. One is that civilization is more fragile than we often you know, spend our days going about realizing. All of this is much more contingent than is commonly thought. And hey. we see again and again throughout history, people being surprised that their civilization, essentially, they, you know, they live throughout their day in ordinary life. And then one day they realize, oh no, my civilization is in decline or things have fallen apart. And that is one of the key themes that you touch on both, both just now and in your book. I think it's not consilient with Stoicism. Seneca has this line that you should you know, hold fast to these three rules. Never give into adversity. It's a very common Stoic idea, but also never trust prosperity and treat yeah. fortune as if anything which he could will, will eventually come to pass. So this idea, I think, of contingency and not taking things for granted is an important one. And this other aspect that you, you pull out is this idea of many modern ideologies, philosophies, what have you, focus more on the subjective to the expense of having a whole picture that's shared, that offers clarity, order, both in the political, religious, and social sense. And that is, if not extremely de detrimental, at least puts at risk our social nature in a way that many people are yeah. simply underrating. Yeah, that is exactly right. And I don't want to suggest, I mean, it's easy to catastrophize and to think that, you know, that contemporary decline and, you know, collapse would take the form of, you know, like Italian peasants huddled in the ruins of the forum in, you know, in a Roman forum in, in you know, sort of 450 AD. I don't think that that's what contemporary collapse would necessarily look like, but I think that the the expansion of technology has masked or somehow papered over i think a more a more serious sort of social intellectual and philosophical decline or at the at the very least as you say a a growing sort of confusion or disorder about our, our place in the world. And if we look, if we expect, you know, like think of sort of like post, post Roman Britons, you know, in the, in the mythical age of Arthur, the sort of hoping that, you know, one, you know, today might be the day when the legions finally return back to Britain and we're safe. If that's our attitude to technology or to the internet or to some other, somehow you know, these, somehow these technologies are going to tell us who we are and what we should do and where we block. It's, it's not going to work. We have to, you know, we have to look somewhere else. Yeah. I think for a world that I'm somewhat familiar with in companies, you see that success can often lead to 
new challenges and sometimes end up in resulting a company if you have it grow too fast, hire too many people. These sorts of things also apply to civilization. So of course, hiring more company growth can be exceptionally beneficial for a company, but it can also be harmful and carries with, has its own risks. And I think at the even wider scale, technology comes with a number of benefits, but it comes with a number of costs, risks, of course, as well. And, you know, I, I mentioned this in the book. I mean, it's like, it's astounding how much people talk about the information age. I think that's kind of a silly word. Like, it, like we should be, we should be more specific as to what we mean by information. Like the, the, the you know, the, the proverbial, you know, the great library, Alexandria, whatever. I mean, it, it would be preposterous to say that it contained information. It seems more than, I, we, I think we can be more specific. Granting that we live still in the information age, I mean, it's, it's an astounding amount of learning from the past, wisdom, you know, whatever you want to call it, it's all available now and it wasn't before. This should give us, you know, th 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 this, this should give us access to an astounding amount of, of, of you know, intellectual sustenance that, that, that could make our lives better, that could make the world more civilized. But we don't tend to do that, or very, very few of us do. The internet is, and, and, and other uh, other pieces of technology are used to send cat videos or whatever it is that people you know do with them. Which is not to say that nobody uses it for any particularly good purpose. I just think that you know, we all, those of us who lived through the nineties, I think that we expected more, and and we have got less. Well, let's end on this question. What does one do in a state such as this? Do you have any general Results. thoughts on how to reach this sort of issue as an individual? As an individual, I mean, I, I, I make a great deal. I, I put a great deal of emphasis in the book on this idea of sort of reconnecting with, with others, which are, you know, is obviously shaped by the experience of lockdown, which in some part really quite quite severe and you know if you if you didn't have a family to live with say friends or something like you you would very likely have been entirely alone and i think that many of us are still suffering from that and it's you know we ought to you know bring, bring ourselves together in more social social ways rather than confining our interaction to online virtual meetings or shouting at each other on twitter i think that that would that would be a good place to start. Otherwise, the present moment, although I do think it is one of decline, it is also opportunity. You know, I talk about this idea of telling, you know, telling truths, the game that has been forgotten, that there are some things that we got right the first time. There are some principles to life that we are now in a good position to realize that they were right all along. Having lived through the 20th century, which, you know, finally seems like it might be over, you know, we, there's hardly a mode of thought or an outlook or some kind of revolutionary idea that was not trolling in the recent past. And they have practically all, practically all. And this is what postmodernists meant when they talked about this sort of you know, the, 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 the skepticism for grand narratives or for meta narratives. And, you know, for, for that part, they, they were, they were right that all of the, maybe not all, but most of, most of the old ideas had failed. They had taught us nothing about ourselves except what not to do. They had failed to usher in any kind of new utopia. They ended in murderous failures and horrific disasters and that they, they've got to go. They must be discarded and, and, you know, taken, if anything, taken as warnings for the future. So now is an opportunity, I think, to revisit what has worked in the past, what has made us civilized, what we have best succeeded at. And I think that there are lots of examples in the book that people might take some inspiration. I am particularly enamored of, you know, what I, what, what is still conventionally called the Islamic golden age. I see that as a great intellect triumph 
in favor of clarity and 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 order far surpassing anything that I think we may, you know far far surpassing the what we call the Enlightenment or or, or the contemporary Carolingian Renaissance or whatever. You know, and I, th- I think that there are a few movements that are quite as you know, quite, quite, quite as intellectually hefty and inspiring as that one. I'm also very much enamored of, of Confucianism. There's, a, there's something akin to a Confucian revival going on in China right now, which is much needed after the upheavals of the 20th century. There's, there's a, I'm very critical of China you know, in the, in the book. I'm a China booster by any stretch of the imagination, but I think that there's something there that we can learn with our own experience of upheaval and dislocation in the 20th century. But, you know, if they can do it, so can we. Attending to history, just in a general sense, a lot of people want to do this. I think a lot of people want to overemphasize the, the sort of misery and the failures of the past, and there are many. I could not be I could not be the kind of person who says that civilization is you know prone to collapse and it's fragile and yet also insists that it's only a story of of triumph and, and success. It isn't. It is mostly a story of something. Um, but we have always managed to to pick up the pieces and to continue again. So far, and we can do that again. It is also easy to overemphasize it as some kind of imaginary fiction like sure, sure. Petrarch. Seeing it clearly, looking at looking at it as objectively as possible and, and and trying to reorientate ourselves, I think that that is much needed. And I think that you know other upheavals are coming as they always have. And that we will need to have that grounding and, and sort of, you know, stability that comes from past orientation if we're going to see our way through. The enemy, I can tell you again, I started with, I started, we started this interview with a negative statement about what civilization is not and what I'm not saying. can end with another negative statement. The, the enemy is amnesia, forgetting the past, trying to bury it, trying to convince ourselves that, you know, Nothing good ever happened before, and we're starting over from year zero. That is the end. We must, we must avoid it. Excellent. On that note, I think we could wrap up. The book is In Defense of Civilization. It's only 250 pages, so if you're interested at all in this chat, I'd highly recommend checking it out. It's relatively short with an excellent number of pointers, so if you want to follow up on any of the points made here, there's a very good bibliography as well. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me.